that great music this morning. That is a good entry for me this morning. Yet not I, but Christ, through Christ in me. <clears throat> so I may be a little bit froggy this morning. Uh, as you all know, because many of you have had a variety of viruses over the past week or two. One of the things with the COVID part of that is that the cold, the cough, and the throat, it just goes on forever, and it won't go away. So bear with me this morning. Yet not I, but Christ, through Christ and me, that my voice will not give out. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things I enjoy is there's uh, an interesting thing that happens a lot of times when we're preaching and teaching Sunday morning, and that's a guy called the Holy Spirit. And he causes things to kind of come together, even though you haven't planned it. I didn't know Roger was going to do prayer time. I didn't know what he was going to say. But it really was a good lead-in to some of the things I'm going to talk about today. I really like that when that happens. The music, I didn't know what the songs were going to be. But the songs fit very nicely to some of the things I'm going to say. So let's start saying some of those things. Now, I, I want to just say a quick prayer because one of the things we need to appreciate is that when we're in God's word, we are worshiping. It is one of the highest forms of worship. And it's not just a one-person worship that we're into here. It's all of us. So I don't want you to just be passive observers and listeners. I want you to be active. And it's part of your worship as you spend time in the Word with me this morning, okay? So let's do that. Father, we thank you for your Word. It is so good. It is so much. It is so deep. And we thank you for it. So as we spend time this morning now giving you worship with your word, your word is truth. And so we take it as such. And this morning, we pray you would use it in our lives and in this church and in our families and in ourselves to bring you glory. And we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. So I'm going to, now by the way, there is a handout in the back, and it might be good if you grabbed hold of one of those, because there's a, there's a picture, there's a picture on the back side of it that I want you to hang on to and keep as a reference. Uh, and I'm going to end up with things today using that picture, and maybe something you've seen before or not. I don't know. There's a number of things in this morning's sermon you may have heard before, 
But I'm going to appeal to the same thing Peter said in Second Peter. He said that uh, 1 verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And that's one of the dangers we have as we're sitting in sermons. We kind of like go, I already heard that. I already know that. Peter's saying, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I hope to stir you up this morning. I was supposed to be doing this last week as kind of a kickoff for the year. And uh, I got kicked off because I was home with, with COVID. So I get a chance this week. Now, Doug, actually, he didn't realize it, but he set up some things, too, for what I'm going to say today. That's another Holy Spirit thing. And we thank Doug for filling in last time. I told Doug, you would make a good Plymouth Brethren guy. This is how they operate. That morning, you get the call. So let me... Let me start now. This morning, I'm going to just paint kind of a broad picture, and it's the war that we're in. And then I'm going to drill down, and I'm going to talk about one specific battleground in that war. This war, and sometimes you hear us bringing this up in some of the sermons, this war is talked about in First and Second Timothy. So the very last letters that Paul writes, he brings this up. And it's interesting, in First Timothy, it's kind of like a sandwich or bookends in chapter 1 and 6. He says to them, fight the good fight. 1, 18 and 19, 6, 12. He says again at the end, fight the good fight of faith. And then in 2 Timothy, when he's very close to his end, he says he has fought the good fight of faith. This is something that I don't, I don't know if we're fully realizing how much we're in a war and we need to fight in a way that requires vigilance in order to hang on to our faith. We're involved in a spiritual war. Now we say that, but I think many times we kind of walk away and it goes in one ear and out the other until something happens. We're involved though in a spiritual war and together all of us are in this spiritual war. It involves every single one of us here this morning. Now this is a, a, a tone or a kind of theme that is scattered throughout the New Testament. It's all over the place. Hebrews 12 says, we're at war against sin. First Peter 2 says, there's a war raging within our souls. Jude 3 talks about the struggle of our faith. Second Timothy talks about the fact that we're soldiers. In second letter to Corinthians, Paul twice says, 
we're Christians and we have weapons that we fight with. And the, and the clearest one is Ephesians 6 that you've always heard. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and the authorities of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Every single one of us is in a spiritual war. I have a tendency to think, you know, there are times in my life when I can have a little bit of peace time. It's not really true. The only time there's going to be peace is in Revelations chapters 21 and 22. Everything until then involves us in a spiritual war. It looks different in each of our lives. There's things going on in every one of our lives. There's battles over worry and doubt and despair, materialism, whether we're at home or at work or whether we're on campus or we're alone or we're with others, there is a spiritual battle that's raging. And you might think, well, hey, I'm not even a Christian, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, you better believe it applies to you. There is a battle for your soul. Don't forget it. And there are spiritual forces that would love to just take you down. Here's a quote that I remember from David Platt. Uh, some years ago, I heard this, and it really, it's about this war, and it really stuck with me. He said, the scope of the spiritual war is universal. It's cosmic in scope. It involves every language, people, nation, tribe, family, life, which means involvement in this spiritual war is inevitable. You do not choose whether or not to be involved in the spiritual war. Your involvement in this spiritual war began the day you were born. You cannot ignore this war. The Bible does not say, ignore the devil and he will flee from you. That isn't what it says. If you try to avoid the war, pretending like there's no struggle to be had, you will not stand. You will waver, you will falter, you will be defeated by the enemy. Spiritual retreat only leads to spiritual defeat. Now, one of the things that struck me, too, about these verses, Paul called it a good fight, right? He said, this is a good fight to be in. I never think of fighting as something that's good. He says it's good, and he says it three times. Is there such a thing as a good fight? Paul says, yes. When you're fighting for eternal life, when you fight for joy, for peace, for confidence, for hope, it's a very good fight for you, and it's a very good fight for others. Think about it. This fight is being waged in your heart and in your life right now, and even right at this moment, 
depending on how much you want to listen to this or hear this or pay attention or think about other things, you're in the middle of that battle. Now, there's a couple battlefields we could talk about in this war. I'm just going to pick one this morning, and it's going to be the battlefield of time. And that's why I decided this is a good way to start out the new year. When we think about we're in a war, and one of the battlefields for us is our time. Now, if we go to Ephesians, we're going to see there's a number of verses that deal with the way that we walk. The term is walk. It's going to be in the last passage here in this sequence. I'm going to run through these quickly. It's, it's the one we're going to focus on this morning, but it has to do with how we conduct ourselves, our daily walk. And that's going to involve our time every single day. So Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says that you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's what we used to do. 2.10, he says, but now... Were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This would be demonstrative of our day to day walk and what we're doing. 4 1. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. 4.17, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. 5.2, walk in love. 5.8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. And then our verse that we're going to focus on this morning, 5.15. I really like this verse. The problem is I'm really convicted by it. I was before, and I still am today. 15, 16, and 17. Here's how it goes. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, sounds like a good verse, right? Let's break it down a little bit and see what might be involved with this. Therefore, be careful how you walk. The ESV says, look carefully then how you walk. Look, that means 
to discern, to contemplate, to take heed. That's why the NESB said careful. Watch and see how you walk. And don't do it as unwise, but as wise. Now, this is going to be one of the keys to this passage and other passages we're going to drop into. Wisdom is key here. Wisdom is very important in, any, in, in, in order to be able to do what this verse and other verses are going to tell us to do. Not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time. Or making the most of the time. Or making the most of every opportunity. Those are all different from different translations. They're all trying to say the same thing. And uh, one of the older versions says redeeming the time. The actual real root word of this is redeem. It's buying back time. And the days, it's because the days are evil. Are the days evil today? Hello? Yeah. You think this verse applies to us today? Yeah. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand, understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand means it talks about reflective thinking. You're going to have to spend some time on this, thinking about what the will of the Lord is so that you can make the most of the opportunity, that you can do it wisely. That's the verse. Now the context here in Ephesians is that this is an exhortation to walk as God's children and to do it as you read through the verses that preceded, you do it with spiritual fruit in a sinful world. Our walk, our lives should be done circumspectly. That means you're really thinking about it and you're inspecting every part of your life. Here's a quote. Fools allow life to happen to them, but wise men make choices based on their sober inspection. Fools allow life to happen to them. Have you done that? I have. Many times. Redeeming or buying back the time we're allowed in light of the evil in which we live is something we need to learn how to do better. Here's the key takeaway this morning. This is the, I only want one thing for you to be pondering on during the week, and here it is. We need to be constantly paying attention to how we are conducting ourselves with wisdom, and taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves in our lives. Let me say it again. We need to be constantly paying attention 
to how we are conducting ourselves with wisdom and taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves in our lives. That's what this verse is telling us to do. Time's not waiting for us. It's a very scarce resource. You can buy more water, more food, more gasoline, but you cannot buy more time. And there's some interesting things that happen, depending on how old you are. Now, everybody's at a different age range. And when I was really young, I was always wishing for something to happen in the near future. And the older I get, I'm looking back and going, things are happening so fast, I'm just blown away. The closer the end of a desired thing, the faster it ends. A shadow barely moves in the middle of the day, but it races as evening approaches. Here's an Old Testament exhortation from Psalm 39. Listen to this. I'll read it. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, You've made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely, every man at his best is a mere breath. Now, in case you didn't get it, the psalmist writes that again in verse 11. Surely, every man is a mere breath. Time goes by pretty fast. The older you get, the more you realize how fast it's going and how little time you may have left, if you're paying attention. Psalm 90, it's a prayer of Moses. Psalm 90, I'll start at the beginning, and then we're going to focus on verse 9. Prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. Verse 9. 9b. We have finished our years like a sigh. You remember Psalm 39? Like a breath. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. So, and here's the point, one point this morning, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? So, the first time I ran into this, I took it literally. Literally. 
I took it literally. And I said, let's count the days. And I said, okay, I'm going to be optimistic, and I'm going to say, I'm going to live 80 years, if by strength. Now, I have no idea. The Lord could take me tomorrow. He could let me to live to be 80. He could let me to live longer. But for the sake of this passage and the example, I'm going to pick 80. By the way, the life expectancy in the United States is what? 79. Actually, you have it pretty good. You know what the life expectancy is in Liberia for men? 55. That's it. Lights out. So let's say I'm going to live to be 80. That's a total of 29,200 days. I'm now 71 plus. I have used 25,915 days. If I count the days like Moses told me I should do it, this is what's happening. And then that shows me on my timeline. I'm at the end of the line. I've only got so many days left, maybe. Now, the point here is not to look back in regret. None of the passages really ever tell us to do that. Passages are always telling us to look ahead. We're supposed to make the most of the opportunity. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Romans 13 talks about this. This do, knowing the time. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night's almost gone, the day's at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light, and behave properly as in the day. It's interesting that just before this passage in 15, verse 14 says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Very interesting. Living a godly life involves making the most of the opportunity. Wisdom is the key here. In many of the passages, we see that word is used as part of what we're supposed to do if we're going to conduct our lives carefully, watching where we're going and what we're doing. Wisdom can be gotten in four different ways. First is in worship. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Second, prayer. If you lack wisdom, James says, let him ask of God. Third, Bible study. Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And fourth, godly instruction. 
we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So how do we do that? We're supposed to make the best use of the time. We're supposed to be doing that wisely and trying to understand what the will of God is in our lives. So, so far, is where we're at. Redeeming time is as easy as saying no to the million requests for it. No man's time is truly out of his control. You can, you can buy back your time if you wish. Being busier is not the answer. We redeem or buy back time by exchanging other things for it. And less sleep is not the cure. And we need to have a godly use of time. Slow down. So, that's it. That's what we're teaching this morning. Now what? How do we begin to think about this in our lives? I just have to pose the question. We've heard it from the guys in the pulpit over the past weeks and months. Many things about the church. We talk about church a lot. And I have to, I just have to press the question do you really, really believe that? Because if you do, it's going to have a lot of impact on how you conduct yourself and walk your life and make an opportunity, make for every opportunity that can come your way. And redeeming the time requires wisdom. If we know what God's will is, then we should be able to wisely begin to take things in our life and apply them. And we only have so much time to do it. So I'm going to take you through a couple of things which you've heard before. I'm really going to challenge you on them. Here's the first one. I'm sure you've seen this before. God's plan for this age is to bring glory to himself by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations. And by building his church <clears throat> through the power of the Holy Spirit in order that his manifold wisdom might be made known. And that comes from Ephesians 2 and 3. Turn there. Turn to chapter 3. We didn't just make this up because we thought it sounded good. I want you to look at 3 verses 8 through 11. Paul is talking to this Ephesians church, and he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. One, 
to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, the gospel. Two, to bring to light what is the administration, what is the household order of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through what? How's the wisdom made known? Through the church. Verse 11, this is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we say there's an ultimate purpose and plan that God has, this is where it comes from. Notice how he closes the passage in verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. He wants to bring glory to himself, and he does it through the proclamation of his son, Jesus Christ, and through the church. Second thing you've probably seen before, and it's good to remind us of it at the beginning of the new year, and it's our church's purpose or mission statement. Now, once again, we didn't just make this up because we, sounded, we think it sounded good. We got this as we studied the book of Acts and as we watched Paul and the apostles go out and how these churches got started. And it gave us this as a mission and purpose statement. So as the church started at Pentecost and then it went out, God's plan is being fulfilled. And we said then we should do that. That should be our mission for CBC. Bring glory to God, there it is, by obeying the commission of his son Jesus Christ to make disciples, that's part of the gospel, to evangelize, to establish the saints in the faith, to equip the saints in the work of the ministry and expand it locally and abroad. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two statements go together. The one feeds the other, right? Are you with me? Are you following that? And they are based on scripture. But that's only half the answer to the question, okay, what about me and my family? But before I go there, I really have to press the question, do you really really believe these statements. And if you do, then how you think about what you do every day, how you make the most of the opportunities that come your way, should be somehow filtered by those statements as to what you're going to do with those times and those opportunities. How are you going to spend your remaining years? But you better be convinced in those statements. 
Because if you're not, you're just going to get involved in all kinds of works-related stuff. Now here's a picture that I'm hoping will be helpful, and it's on the back sheet of that handout. It's a picture we lovingly called the wedge. All right? And, so, and it may be a little bit, well, for the most part, it's got the key points that I want you to, to visualize up there. If you notice, the, the grid is going left to right, correct? And it starts with God's plan. And it goes to the church, and then it goes to the family, and then it goes to the individual. That's the direction, if you will, if you're trying to think about, think about and plan in some way, what am I supposed to be doing? And how am I supposed to be doing it? And you've got two statements that deal with God's plan in the church's mission statement, what's lacking is what do you say about your family and what do you say about yourself? Now, I'm going to suggest a really good application for this morning's sermon is that you will deliberately decide to spend a little bit of time to write a purpose statement or a little mission statement for you if you're single, you and your wife if you're married, or you and your family if you have some older kids, and you write out a family purpose statement. And you write it based on the fact that you really do believe those other two statements which deal with God's plan and the church's mission statement. Now, when we first did this with our kids some years ago, they were in high school, and let me tell you, they painted the ceiling with their eyes. It was like, what? What are you doing? We don't know how to do that. That's, that's you and church stuff. And I'm like, no, that's you stuff. This is important. And it took a while. But we, as a family, wrote a family purpose statement. And I wrote an individual purpose statement. And guess what? They all should dovetail. Now, that's the planning side of it. And it's going left to right. And when you're going to execute on those things, you're going to go right to left. The point of having the statements there, twofold. Number one, when you write something down, it has an import that is much greater than just thinking about it and then walking away. That's kind of like looking at the mirror, looking at yourself walking away and forgetting what you look like, like it says in Scripture. Spend some time and try this out. Two, there were times in our family when we had things that came up that we couldn't agree on, and you know what I did? I pulled out our family purpose statement, and I said, so help me understand how this fits 
It might be a nice thing. It might be a good thing. How does it fit with our family purpose statement? And I can do the same thing as an individual if I have a personal statement. How does your family and how do you personally fit in with the church and God's plan? And we keep talking about how important it is. Well, I want you to be intentional. That's a word that's been running around for a while. I want you to be intentional. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Do something about it. Write it down. And then hold each other accountable in the family. Are we doing this or not? Do we really believe this or not? It changed a lot of things in our family. And we had things in there like, we're going to do a neighborhood Bible study. And guess what happened? It didn't happen right away. But that purpose statement kept coming up, and it's like, we said this was an important thing to do. Here's another example of how that could work. I'm going to use McDon and his family as an example. When it comes to lunchtime, that's not a McNon affair. That's a go affair. McNon and Cherry and Chloe and Matheson and Clara, they're all helping make the meal, serve the meal. And you know what? It takes time out of their life to do that. They had to commit to a certain amount of time to take the advantage of an opportunity for something to be done with the church, in the church, and to do it as a family. Now, there's a lot of those examples that are going on that are seen and unseen. There are times when the Otten family came and sang at the CBC dinner. It was a family thing. Get creative and start to figure out how to do things as a family, not just as an individual. In ministries, all kinds of ministries that can happen. I think I have enough time for one more thing. And it's another application. Turn to Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is the other battlefield, and we don't have time to develop it, <clears throat> but it's a sister verse to the Ephesians verse. Colossians 4, 5 and 6. You're going to see it's very similar. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. There's that phrase, redeeming the time. It's only used twice in Scripture, Ephesians and here. Making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This has a lot to do with the presenting of the gospel. But if you don't have time and if you're not paying attention and you're not making the most 
of opportunities. They're going to fly right by you, and then they're gone, right? You've got to be deliberate. You've got to be intentional. You have to have purpose and mission that you've already said, I need to be doing this, and here's some areas that I can do it in. Now, here's one area coming up, hopefully, in the near future. Dave, Dr. Dave, he's on the front line in the war with the CBC ministry. He's out there almost every Saturday doing this right here. And you know what? It costs him time. But he has made a calculated decision to say this fits within God's purpose this fits within the church's mission statement, and I and my family, we're going to do this, and we're going to use that opportunity also to share the gospel. Uh, but that's a war. That's a frontline war battlefield. And you know what he needs? He needs some reinforcements. He needs the reserves. Because... We want to take advantage of that opportunity. Adam Howell has been calling past people who've been in that ministry. Do you know how many people have been through that ministry? What, have you exceeded a thousand? Yeah, more than a thousand people. Adam circling back around to some of those, calling them on the phone and talking to them and trying to find out how are they doing. Now we want to take it a step further, and we want to invite them into our homes so we can talk to them about what God is doing in our lives. Like Brian said two weeks ago, doesn't mean you got to lay down the three or four points of the gospel and say, there it is, take it or leave it. That's not the point. It's an approach to have a relationship and you have the opportunity to share what the Lord is doing in your life and finding out what's happening in their life and then deciding what you might want to do. But you know what? It's going to take some time. You are going to have to deliberately decide, you and your family or you as an individual, if you're single, is that something that I think fits within the church's mission statement and God's purpose and plan. And if it is, why wouldn't I want to be involved in it? Are you with me? Are you? Okay. <laughs> think about that. All right. Last week, Doug took us to, to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm going to do the same thing this morning. First Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 32. Now, I want you to notice something as we, as we break this down a little bit. At the very beginning and at the very end, are two statements that Paul makes that help us with context. At the beginning, 
In verse 17, he says, you come, when you come together, because you come together, in 18, when you come together, all right? And then he's going to take them and he's going to admonish them about something. And at the very end, he closes it and he says, in 33, when you, so then, when you come together to eat, boom, there it is, at the beginning and at the end, when you come together to eat, and everything in between has to do with the Lord's Supper. Now, he's admonishing them because he's been coming down through the chapters in Corinthians, addressing questions and addressing issues that are going on in the church. And he's saying to them here, here's another problem area that you have. The problem is that when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper in verse 20. In your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God, shaming those who have nothing? That's what he's admonishing them for at communion time. And then he goes into what we often pull out and we use at communion. And it's not wrong what we say, but there is a bigger context. And he, I think he's using verses 23 through 26 here to demonstrate, here's the example. You guys are self-serving and selfish. Jesus, on the night before he died, he came to serve. He came to die. That's not the way you're at. And then he says in verse 27, therefore... If you eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, and he just described earlier what that unworthy manner looks like, you're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So examine yourself. Judge the body rightly. And if you don't, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and numbers sleep. The Lord takes this very seriously. How we treat each other in the body is critical. Critical. 